section eleven of G. K. Chesterton in Vanity Fair magazine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G. K. Chesterton in Vanity Fair magazine by G. K. Chesterton. The wreck of the modern machine. By far the happiest and most hopeful news that can now be brought to human beings is the news that they are on the wrong road and have come to the wrong place. That is why all real progress is founded on the fall of man, and not on evolution or any such early Victorian muddles in the mind. There are enough early Victorians of an evolutionary sort left alive to permit the impression that there is something highly mystical and even superstitious in talking about the fall of man. Yet this truth can be illustrated in the most practical and even prosaic way by any visible and bodily fall of man. If you are motoring in your superb car to your magnificent country seat, in company with two judges and a bishop, or some other select members of your social circle, it is always possible that you may come to a smash, and actually fall into a ditch. For some appreciable time you may find yourself, let us say, sitting on the bishop's head, with the judge lying on top of you upside down, with his legs waving in the air. Such things can happen to the wealthy, and are among the consolations of the wise. Let us agree that even then your admirable sanity and self-control will enable you to exchange lucid and detached specimens of polished conversation. The judge will be able to explain with judicial logic that you were undoubtedly on the wrong side of the road. The bishop will still be able to offer religious consolation in a somewhat muffled voice from below. You yourself, I assume, will treat the whole situation with that charming touch of humour which is the finest grace of hospitality. But it is clear that the cheerfulness of this wayside chat will depend on the admission that the situation is something rather out of the way— even in the literal sense of being a little bit off the road. Bright and bracing conversation in the ditch will depend on the confession that you are in the ditch. You will not be so successful if you treat the ditch as the destination, and infuse into your hospitality the final joy of one welcoming his friends to his fireside. It will not do to maintain that sitting on somebody else in a ditch is actually what you mean by your country seat. Though in pure logic it certainly is a seat, and one generally only to be found in the more rural and secluded parts of the country. It will not do to suggest that your journey has already come to its appointed end, though it has certainly come to a positive stop, and has for the moment ended or possibility of repairing the car and resuming the journey must start from the recognition of a mistake, and all conception of getting back onto the right road must begin with the confession of having taken the wrong road. The wrong road. And this is pretty much the present position of our society and of any chances of its renewal. The first fact is that we have come to the wrong place, 
and the first obstacle is any sort of pretense that it is even relatively the right place. Modern industrial and capitalistic society is an exceedingly dirty ditch, and we are sitting on better people than bishops. We are doing the unwisest thing of all. We are sitting on the chauffeur. But it is not only true that we are in the wrong place. It is largely true that we have long been on the wrong road. The directions we have ourselves given to the chauffeur have been almost invariably wrong directions. If there is one outstanding and startling fact in recent history, it is, I think, the series of blunders made by the educated and especially by the learned. The cultured were admiring the Kaiser for his military efficiency and his empire of education, while the ignorant were making game of him because of his moustaches. The ignorant were right, as they often are. The whole Teutonic theory of history, which had its last triumph in the invasion of Belgium, was a thing known to the rich and not to the poor. It was actually taught by the rich to the poor, fortunately without much success. Fortunately for us, a bricklayer was seldom found embracing a Prussian and hailing him as the true Germanic overlord, leading a folk wandering to renew the decadent nations. It was culture that supported culture, and fortunately for us, the nonsense and the nightmare perished together. But we still have a lingering prejudice that the Prussian path was the right path, simply because it had so long been our own path. The name given to it is organization, or in plainer words, machinery. And we still think we can reach some sort of renaissance by refurbishing and cleaning and oiling that old machinery. Such a notion, to begin with, is contrary to the very nature of every renaissance in history. A renaissance in its nature is the finding of something that is new, because it is old. But it is only new because it is very old. The thing renewed may be quite a remote thing, it can never be merely a recent thing. The great renaissance, which has given its name to every other renaissance, produced artists precisely because it proceeded from antiquaries. It modelled the new world in ancient arts that were not only morally dead, but materially and literally buried. The French Revolution and its great prophetic precursor, the American Revolution, went back to a republican simplicity which it could only find far away in the small republics of antiquity. But modern men seem to imagine that they can renew the modern world with mere machinery of the modern world. They seem to think that if they can only make economic power more concentrated, or education more compulsory, or the division of labour more detailed and ingenious, or in short, the twentieth century, like the nineteenth century, only more so, then youth and hope will at last return to the world. 
This is just as if men had hoped in the last dark decline of medievalism, and they could then produce Leonardo and Shakespeare by making further complications in heraldry, by making a new kind of division as well as party per pale, or new posture for the lion between the rampant and passant. It is as if men thought they could refresh the world with the freedom of the French and American revolutions by adding new statues to Versailles or new sticks in waiting to the court of George the Third. Science as a Panacea We are especially told, for instance, that science will lead us out of the modern tangle. It does not seem to occur to anybody that science had a good deal to do with leading us into it. At any rate, those who consistently use the name of science consistently led us into it. Anthropological science was made the excuse for glorifying the tribe which was supposed to be Teuton and turned out to be Prussian. Economic science was made the excuse for permitting the inhuman competition which has culminated in capitalism. The science of the nineteenth century systematically taught us that the worst ethics were the best economics. Chemical and mechanical science have done at least as much for the infliction of wounds as for the healing of them. They have produced such a renaissance of torture and poison that even the men like Mr. H. G. Wells, who put their trust in the tools of science, have to cry aloud for a new cosmopolitan system merely to protect us against the weapons of science. All these are but proposals for driving further in the direction that has already landed us in the ditch. If any renaissance comes, it will not come from the things we are cultivating— but from the things we are neglecting. They are the things which we are needing, because they are the things we are neglecting. Because organized education utterly ignores the natural tradition of culture from father to son, the real culture will come from some individual fathers really educating individual sons. Because organized militarism has largely forgotten chivalry and chance fighting for justice, Justice will probably be vindicated by some chance fight. Because property concentrated in huge fortunes or large estates has lost all personality and meaning, property will be rediscovered by some small man who insists upon managing his own small garden. The pompous and personal things among which we have moved for so long will be confronted with the pugnacious personal things which they were once supposed to represent, but which they have long been banded together to betray. It may seem like a war of small things against great, but the small things will be real, where the great are unreal. It may seem like the contrast between a man and a giant, but in truth it will only be like the contrast between a man and his own gigantic shadow at evening. End of section 11